To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, I tr- in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with that, with what violence, hatred, they ha- they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of its out of all its troubles. This this is the word of the Lord. I hope you'll open your Bibles today. We open up God's Word. I want you to have it in your laps, on your phone, because I want you to see the exact phrases, exact words in this passage, and I'm going to come back to them quite a bit. Um, But um, the book of Psalms, the reason we're here is, well, the book of Psalms really is the songbook of God's people. Songbook of God's people. It's a it's a book that has been sung quite literally by uh, the average Jew, uh, including uh, Jesus and his disciples when, they, when he did his ministry. It was, um, it was sung in the early church. Uh, it's been cherished still, informing so many of the lyrics in our present songs. It is the songbook of God's people in which we find not just honesty about the mess and the muck of life, but what it sounds like to walk with God through all of it. It's no wonder that this book makes up perhaps the beating heart of a section in the Old Testament called the wisdom literature. You see, wisdom is exactly what's required for this kind of life, the life that we're going to see described here. It's the kind, and wisdom is what the author of Psalm chapter 25 is longing for. In fact, in Psalm 25, we find someone who wants to lift his soul up to God, as he says. We saw this phrase last week in Psalm chapter 24, but it was used of things that are false, lifting our souls up, putting our trust in so many things that are false. David instead longs for, in the very first verses, God, I want to lift my soul up to you. In other words, he wants to not just direct his attention to God, but to direct his desire to God. 
not to these other false things. But he's also weighing, and this is perhaps really important to understand our specific passage, a real sense of uncertainty and risk in doing so. Add to that a deep sense of inadequacy when it comes to seeing his own misguided actions and attitudes when it comes to lifting his soul up to God. It's not just that the path that he wants to walk, it's not just that it's unreliable, the author knows that he can be too. I mean, can you relate? So we talk about regularly here, in some ways, the costs are adding up to be a public Christian today. Now, these costs certainly are not what they are for so many other Christians around the world or have been throughout history. It's important that we say that. And in a sense, following Jesus, even in the United States, has always come with a particular cost, even when it was normal to identify as a Christian. I don't know how or where you grew up. But I think we can say that identifying with Jesus, let alone living in such a way that allows the Bible to direct my decisions and my goals. I think we can say that not only is that path more commonly avoided today, it's even despised. We might say that that path feels more difficult than ever. In Psalm 25, we are hearing from someone who not only understands but assumes that walking with God will be uncertain, certain it will be dangerous, and the journey will most certainly be long and sometimes painfully slow. And on that path, the question is, is what do we most need? It is not so much a certain technique. I'm just going to tell you that. It's, it's not so much a set of guiding principles as much as it is a vision of the one who walks with us, a vision of our guide, a vision of God himself. And I hope you'll keep your Bibles open as we consider Psalm 25 in three parts, or rather three realities we are going to encounter in walking with God, as well as the needs that it surfaces. And I want to start with the first. The first of these is that the paths are winding. The paths in front of us are winding and what we need is a teacher. Now, as a kid, I loved playing with Legos. Anybody like that when you were a kid? I loved playing with Legos. In fact, even now as a dad, I love putting together Lego sets with my kids. It's one of my favorite things when they get a Lego set for Christmas, although we're like doing it together now, which means it takes hours for a little car. Um, but nonetheless, I love, uh, one of the things I love is these step-by-step instructions. I know not everybody's like this. You're like, wow, you're clearly a type A personality. I don't know that that's true, but regardless, I love these step-by-step instructions. Uh, I love these little pictures that tell me, okay, this brick goes here, and then that brick goes there, and then the one, this one goes on top of it. Um, is it, again, weird to say that I find these step-by-step instructions uh, relaxing, if you were, will? In fact, I, I heard that you can uh, now rent Lego sets to come to your house uh, just to put them together and then to take them apart, send them off, and to get an entirely new one. I mean, this sounds awesome to me. Some of you are like, Evan, you need to get out more. But I love this kind of stuff. Uh, but it's something so restful, not, not only just about, about knowing what, not just what to do, not just what to do next, um, for once uh, to have all the need for making decisions off of my shoulders, but to have the certainty that if I just follow the plan, 
It will all lead right where I want it to, to the castle or the space station or the Millennium Falcon. Again, some of you are like, Evan, you need to get out more. But this, uh, maybe it's because so much of life, though, isn't like this at all, is it? It's more like being handed a box of random Legos and told to build stuff. It's, it's not like all the bricks are there. Sometimes it's, again, just the random and obscure ones. Life feels like it's a series of unclear decisions with not enough resources, some of which, some of these decisions will drastically set the course of your life, and it's not all that clear which one is best. Add to that, that this that we have more choices than ever today, don't we? We are a bit, have a bit of choice overload. You can go to the grocery store, for instance, and literally pick between 200 varieties of cereal. And these choices, with these choices, has come a constant level, I think, of uncertainty, even anxiety. Anyone here ever experienced not just decision overload, but decision paralysis? It's not just that you are overwhelmed by all the things you have to choose and make up your mind about, but that you find yourself unable to choose again. I don't know how many times I have asked people in my life to pray for, what do you say, wisdom, discernment, or how many people, that's their very first request when I talk with them. It's hard not to empathize with the psalmist in verse 4, make me, make known to me your ways, teach me your paths. Many of us desperately want to know God's will for our lives However, I find that people so often in asking for God's will in their lives means something like, God, would you just tell me what to do next? What choice should I make? What path should I take? And I don't know, I'm, I don't think I'm the only one here that wrestles with questions like this all the time. And like we should, so many of us pray about these decisions. But we treat prayer, as one of my friends puts it, like an, a magic eight ball. You ever seen this toy? This plastic little ball that you shake up and it reveals a small dice floats to the top with the answer to your question that you've asked of it. Should I break up with him? Yes, definitely. Should, will I pass the test? Don't count on it. Should I tell them what's going on? Ask again later. Is this the right job for me? Outlook not so good. Sometimes we get really mystical about interpreting this will too, looking for signs in the world around us, interpreting the open parking spot or the gust of wind as God's no. Still, some of us open our Bible at random, looking to see if some verse will tell me what to do. Still, others of us wait for some sense of peace in our spirit before we proceed. Some of us put tests before God or fleeces before God, looking for him to confirm what we are already convinced of. Believe it or not, I was taught some of these things growing up when it came to seeking out God's will. Then others of us don't necessarily do this, to be honest. We just, we don't necessarily seek out God's will at all. We don't resort to mysticism, but we do resort to our own wit and resources. We don't have time, as we would say, to stand around asking God what he would have us do. People are counting on us. Decisions need to be made, and we're not sure really that God cares about some of these things anyways. We treat God's will like some unsearchable, indiscernible thing, like the meaning to a song that nobody understands, a meaning we I mean, maybe finally will get if we were ever to sit down with the author someday. Or we treat 
seeking out God's will as a convenience for those who have more time or less responsibility than we do. It turns out that seeking God's will has less to do with uncovering God's private plan and relying on our very subjective experiences to confirm it, and it is yet certainly not a distraction or imposition on our happiness. It is necessary to seek out in the big decisions, yes, but also in the mass of small decisions that we make every day about how we will spend our time, our thoughts, our money. So then, what, what does it mean to seek out God's will if it's not these things? To seek out his ways, to know his paths, to be led by his truth as David cries out for again and again. As much as wisdom is about knowing God's will, I have to tell you, it is even more so about knowing God himself. Knowing who he is and what he has done. Knowing what he loves, what he hates, and what he has revealed about his plans and purposes for the world. After all, notice the phrasing here. David prays not just that he might know the way he should take, what does it say? But to know his way, your way. In other words, he submits himself and his entire philosophy of life, not so much to a set of rules or principles, but to a certain person. J.R. Packer puts it this way, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. We were created to know God, to walk with him, and only knowing God will allow us, will enable us to navigate the unpredictable set of experiences and choices that we face. You and I were, everyone we meet actually was stamped with this very purpose, to know God. We were made to know and to worship him, to give ultimate importance and allegiance to him. And that is what David longs for, even more than he longs for what he should do next. He longs for God even more than he longs for the knowledge about what to do next. This is what this passage describes as the fear of the Lord, which is less of a fear over making the wrong choice and ruining God's plan for our lives. That's not what this is referring to. This fear of God is about Trusting God as my orienting compass. Fearing his opinion more than I would fear anyone else's. To tremble before one I love, yet who is supremely powerful and does not, yet, does not mess around with sin. To fear God is to allow God to govern my relationships and plans. We've already seen this in verse 1, where David, again, says he lifts his soul up to God. He directs his desires to him. And only a desire to know and to honor God can ultimately direct you as the paths fork and continue to fork ahead 
And this desire may make certain decisions more difficult, even as it makes some decisions way more simple. As a Christian, I have to tell you, if, if for those who, again, know this fear of the Lord, they will wrestle, they will fast, they will pray, they will stress over certain decisions that no one else gives a second thought to. And yet there are some things that they face that they're wonderfully unanxious about, things that everybody worries about losing, decisions they fear about making the wrong one. Christians go in knowing that so long they're in the Lord's hands, they can walk forward. They can choose plan A and know he is just as committed to them there as he is on plan B. Knowing God, knowing his will, is bound up with knowing God himself. To put this differently, seeking God's will is less like, should I choose Cheerios or Cocoa Puffs this morning? Instead, it has a lot more to do with thinking God's thoughts after him. It asks, what do you care most about here, Lord? What does your word reveal about what is true and good and beautiful, even if I am hearing the opposite from everyone else? What does it look like to live as someone who trusts you as king, as the king that you actually are. Knowing God's will, and again, is bound up with knowing God himself and knowing what will bring God the most glory, a glory that goes hand in hand with my ultimate joy. Friends, just to be honest, we encounter every day a maze of opinions and claims about what it means to be on the right side of things about what it looks like to put ourselves on the path of true happiness. Even many Christians struggle over serious questions and situations that don't seem to be directly addressed in God's word, although the implications are certainly there. Should my kids go to public school? Should I support critical race theory? Should I use someone's chosen pronouns? Should I take this job? Should I say something? Should I step in and help? God cares about the answers to these questions, and I'm convinced that there are strong implications in God's word for making these decisions. But only knowing God, knowing what God loves, what he hates, his goals and plans for history will allow us to navigate our lives in a way that brings him much glory. If you're looking for proof texts all the time for how I should navigate this situation, I have to tell you, you're not always going to find them because the Bible is about something better, something bigger, something more central that makes this book applicable no matter what generation it comes to. It is telling you about God himself, what he has made us for, and where he is taking history. And we seek to know those things, so often the path will become a little clearer ahead. How in the world... Are we, again, to negotiate the maze of opinions and claims we encounter on a daily basis? How, would, how are we going to be able to not only discern the truth, but make decisions based on the truth? By cultivating a deep, abiding understanding of what God has revealed about himself. How do we cultivate that kind of knowledge? By going directly to the source. In daily study of God's word, in regular community, with people who are devoted to it with you. 
Again, in daily study of God's word, in regular community with people who are devoted to it with you. This word of God, the word of God from God himself is what trains us to choose rightly, even when the Bible doesn't speak directly to my situation, because knowing it leads to knowing him. Of course, simply knowing God's word isn't enough, although I can say, you, if I tell my students all the time, I teach college students, the number one rule of understanding the Bible, if you want to understand the Bible, one must read the Bible. Okay, so we cannot hope to understand God, understand his word if we don't give daily attention to it, asking a lot of questions, going verse by verse from beginning to end, seeking out other resources, other people who can help us sustain. But again, knowing God's word isn't enough if it's not accompanied with a willingness to hear what it says, even if it might disagree with me, or a diligence to do what it says, even if it might cost me. But the one who speaks in his word is the one who has made you and everything else in this world. You can trust him, in other words, with your happiness. The paths are winding, friends. And for this journey, we need a teacher. That's the first reality of walking with God through life. But this leads to the second reality, and that's the road is dangerous. And for this, we need a friend. You see, sometimes what feels overwhelming as we face decisions in our life is not just the uncertainty of the decisions about which option do I pick, so much as it's the fear over what comes next when I pick. What will happen to me if I take that path, especially if it's not the popular one, the easiest one, especially if it is bound to meet with not just confusion, but disappointment from others, maybe even shame and anger from them. This seems to be what David has on his mind as well. After all, notice how he asks God, don't let me be put to shame. He asks it at the beginning in verse 2 and at the backside in verse 20 of this psalm. Don't let me be put to shame. But what exactly is he referring to? What kind of shame? After all, you and I, we experience shame and not all of our shame is of the same kind. It can be shame over a past mistake, over an opportunity not taken, over a comment that even today still haunts us, over how our body looks, over a failure to live up to someone else's expectations, especially our own. The thing about shame is it can be real or it can be perceived. It can be grounded in real disgust and ugly treatment from others, or just an inescapable inward sense that has no real explanation, a sense that I'm, I, not simply, I didn't just simply mess up, but that I am, at my very core, messed up, that I am broken beyond repair. Well, what kind of shame is David dealing with? Even while we don't know the situation, and I think it's good that we don't, it means it's applicable to a variety of situations, I think we can say that this shame is both internal and external. But I want to start with that, that second one, the external shame, which is a large portion of what he talks about. What do we mean external shame? Let's notice the language in verse 2. If you look at that verse with me, what does he say? Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. 
Let not my enemies exult over me. What David seems to be concerned about here is not just that his enemies are waiting and hoping for him to fall. It's it's that they're hoping to discredit him and more importantly, to discredit what he stands for. You see, in his failure, David fears that they are all going to say, I mean, we knew it, didn't we? Either trust in his God is foolish, or he doesn't really trust in that God like he claims. In other words, David's enemies have a real interest in putting David to shame, and it's more than just a sick desire to see him trip up. You see, if they can put David to shame, they don't really need to be concerned with what he stood for. They don't need to really take his God seriously. You can see all of this actually in some of the language that you hear used today about being on the wrong side of history. We hear this all the time. You know what language that is? That's shame language. Saying, you definitely better be be over here. You definitely don't want to be over there. If you are over there, you see there must be something actually wrong with you. Either you must be ignorant, or you may be just sick, or you may at your very core be evil. Either way, you need to be silenced if you are over there and not over here. After all, if we can sufficiently shame someone, we can either compel them to conform with us, or we can make them utterly irrelevant someone who is on the wrong side of history, someone you don't want to be like, lest you be a leper yourself. Certainly, you can see this with the unrelenting pressures to make Christians adjust on their opinions today concerning marriage, sex, and gender. But I've also seen this actually from religious people, too, who shut down honest conversations about race or greed or injustice. If we can shame someone, if we can just label them a bigot or Marxist, either we can get them on our side or discredit their entire way of thinking. Friends, one of the things we need to recognize is that the Bible is not only honest about this kind of shame, but honest about how it is often weaponized against those who would follow Jesus, often from those who are closest to them. Just listen to what Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Crochet that on a pillow. What is Jesus telling us here? Certainly, he is not excusing religious people from being jerks. And unfortunately, I've met a lot of religious people who say, see, God tells us we're going to have persecution, so I'm going to go find some. Okay, that is not what God is telling us to do. He is promising that this persecution is an inevitable outcome for those who identify with Jesus Christ, not that we should go seek it out. It doesn't give us permission to be jerks. Some of the reason that you are suffering for your faith is because you are uh, being... um, a bit obtuse, a bit insensitive, a bit self-righteous, because you are too busy looking down on them, labeling them as the other, then you are welcoming them as a fellow beggar to the bread. Does not give us permission to be jerks. But notice that he says, following the Son of Man and being public about it, that Son of Man is referring to him, 
to following Jesus and being public about it, even when we do so with integrity and humility, which are our only options. You want to follow Jesus? has to be done in those terms. With integrity and humility, even then it will lead to being hated, excluded, reviled, even being spurned as evil. After all, Jesus goes on in verse 23, they did so to the prophets too. It's only a matter of time before following Jesus leads you to do or say something others will see as strange, stupid, or savage. This may include telling the truth, even when it harms your reputation, even your career. Or it might mean refusing to cut corners, even if no one would know. Or living a pure and celibate life if you are not married, even when it might seem strange to others or feel terribly lonely. Or being clear about your loyalty to Jesus, even when it meets with disappointment and snide remarks. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me ask you, does he say some? He says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Does that include you if you are a Christian? What is, what is Paul in, light with, in line with Jesus saying will come in your life, that your faith will eventually cost you something, cost you something dear? Even as Jesus says, sometimes it will feel like death. You will have to die to some of your most natural desires, some of your relationships, as much as you fight to preserve them, and you should, seeking to be clear about the reasons for your faith, even as you are clear on the truth of it that those relationships will change, that you will be persecuted. And I fear many Christians have spent their lives trying to isolate themselves, becoming private about their faith, trying to avoid this kind of persecution that not only Jesus says will come, but may be his means for you to grow in your love for him. It's no coincidence that Paul calls this filling up with the afflictions of Christ. Enduring the same suffers, suffering that our Savior even suffered. If he, being supremely worthy, still suffered for faith in his Father, do we really think that we can avoid it? Well, Christians should not go seeking persecution out. In fact, Paul tells us that we, would, that we should pray to be able to live a quiet and peaceful life in complete godliness and dignity. We should pray that, friends. Don't pray for the persecution to come. Pray that you might live a quiet and peaceful life in complete godliness and dignity. But as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4, we should, in verse 12, not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't that honest? Don't be surprised. It's not something strange. Just like these authors, David expects that following God will make you vulnerable, and he knows that on his own, this path of integrity would be no match for the power politics of the world. We would, know, we would not be able to stand on our own two feet if we were led, left to ourselves, and praise God, we are not. But that leads to the second and, the, uh, and another sense of shame we better not skip over, not just the external shame, but a sense of internal shame. Notice the sense of external shame, again, isn't the only thing he experienced, but something at a deep internal level. We're going to consider this again in just a bit, but notice how David puts it in verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble. That's what we've discussed previously. But then he says, and forgive all my sins. 
It's as if he has a sense not only that others are out to get him, but at least in part, he has gotten himself into this mess. Even as he seeks to maintain his integrity, he is deeply aware of his own inadequacy and of the ugliness of his own heart. He has no reason to be self-righteous, in other words. How then are we to walk with integrity, not only when the path is uncertain, but when it proves to be dangerous? What is our hope when we find ourselves, as verse 15 puts it, in the net, let alone when that net is one we have laid for ourselves? Only knowing what David refers to in verse 14 as the friendship of the Lord. Is that a fascinating phrase to you, as as fascinating as as it is to me? The idea of having friendship from the Lord, it may not sound that strange to you, but it should. You know, in in, in other world religions, this kind of relationship with God is never assumed, never thought possible. He is removed from us. Part of his basic nature is that he would not be friends with us. He is only the king. And yet the Bible is unique in saying this sovereign king who is creator in a category unto himself has nonetheless drawn near to his creatures, specifically his image bearers. He has made himself known to them. In fact, he has gone so far as to take on human flesh to become the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, a God who comes to us, comes near to us. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to this in just a second. It's remarkably intimate language, the friendship of the Lord. In fact, some translations render this. If you have a different translation, the Lord confides in those who fear him. Instead of the friendship of the Lord, it says the Lord confides in those who fear him. Both translations are getting at the same reality, that God welcomes near those who he loves, those who fear him, into his inner circle. He even identifies them as his friends. You see, David assumes that what we need to navigate the complex and difficult decisions we face isn't just guidance. We need someone who walks with us, who sees us, who comforts us, and protects us whatever comes even in our bad decisions. We need someone who sticks up for me, even when I don't feel worth defending. We need a friend. After all, isn't this the sign of a friend? That they are with you, that they are for you, even at your worst moments. They don't cover over what you've done, pretend that it's any different, but they are for you at your worst If you don't have a friend like this, I encourage you to find one. I tell you, my greatest experience of this has been through my wife. I'm grateful God has gifted me with a best friend, although it really takes work, just like any marriage. It really does. Which as an aside, and I I just want to say this as an aside, is what I know some of you find yourself at least wanting a spouse, imagining that in your future. You need to cultivate friendship with them if you are to get married. That is the longing that should orient you as you discern someone who shares your convictions about Jesus Christ, who sees them as their Lord and King, and someone who is your friend. Not sex, not romance, not common interest. Friendship is the heart of a thriving marriage. In fact, it makes all the other stuff all the sweeter. 
And for those who are single, I need to tell you, again, you are not an in-process person. Unlike what our culture would often say, sexual fulfillment is not your path to happiness, let alone having a, re a relationship. And so often we, we reduce ourselves to that. The Bible is freeing to those who find themselves to be single. I'm going on a little bit of a side, but I need to say this again. It was remarkably freeing, saying that they could find new freedom and opportunities in following King Jesus and investing in a local church that many didn't have those same freedoms. It was a position of dignity, a role, a responsibility, a calling that no one in the rest of the world saw as, they, they saw singles as in-process people. The Bible would not. And I need to say, though, nonetheless, if you are single, even more so, I want to say to everyone here to cultivate the kind of friendships, a faithful friendship who is going to be for you even when no one else is. And, but even my wife, as I'm grateful that this is the case, she can't walk beside me in everything. And we both struggle to demonstrate the kind of selflessness that real friendship requires. It seems one of the things that makes David's circumstance so severe is that he is navigating this without a human friendship by his side. It is why he speaks in verse 16, not only of being afflicted on this path, but of being very lonely, of having the troubles of his heart enlarged. It's not just that he's facing difficulty, but he's facing these difficulties alone, without a friend to defend him. And yet, he draws comfort in the friendship he experiences in God himself, whose love is steadfast and whose faithfulness is unshifting. And if you find yourself without this friend, whether you're single or you're married or somewhere in the middle, some in complicated relationship, if you find yourself without this kind of friend, draw from David's example, you have it in God himself. In fact, the best in human friendship is only pointing to him. As important as human friendships are, no other friend can be what God is for me. No one can take the pressure of it, save Jesus himself, who promised in Matthew 28 to be with you always, to be with you even to the end of the age, to be with you even when your whole world is spinning, to be with you, to be your friend even when you're not sure what to do, to be with you on path A even as he much would be on path B, to be with you when no one else is. How can we be certain then that Jesus would be that kind of friend to us? This leads to our third reality. Number three, not only again his are the paths winding and the road dangerous, but I am prone to wander. I need a savior. You see, David seems to assume that the problems he faces aren't just out there, they are in here. This path of integrity, in other words, isn't just difficult to follow, he is prone to wander from it, and in some painful ways. In fact, he refers to his guilt as great in verse 11. He not only assumes his guilt is real, not just perceived, this isn't false shame that some of us experience, but that his offenses are massive and complex. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, there was one of my favorite commercials growing up from Oak Express. Do you remember these? Uh, ran a series of commercials that ended in the tagline, tag um, that's not natural, but Oak Express is. I still remember it today. Apparently it worked in their pitch meeting. But nonetheless, the, one of these commercials here is a couple is driving along only to realize that they're lost. And the husband then pipes up, looks over to his wife and says, you know what? I think I'm lost. I think I'm going to pull over and ask for directions. And then it pulled up 
that's not natural, but Oak Express is. The reason it's funny is because, at least in our experience, that's hardly the case. And please don't elbow the person you're sitting next to. One of the most difficult claims, in fact, uh, of the Bible is that this isn't just true of some of us. This is actually true of all of us. One of the most difficult claims, again, is that human beings are not only prone to wander, but they're stubbornly resistant to admit it, that they get themselves lost and they will not say so. We would rather remain wise in our own eyes than admit, in fact, we are lost and unable to get back on the right path. Usually we cover over this sense by working hard or by showing off or by comparing ourselves to others or by distracting ourselves from this gnawing sense through a yet another form of entertainment or social media. And yet the Bible is shockingly honest about how all of us are only five minutes away from compromise. I mean, just think about that. No one in this room is free from it, free from the danger. All of us are five minutes away from compromise. And, and that we can right now be wandering even if we don't realize it, even if our life is working out as we hoped it would. Often, it takes a great failure to catch our attention. But then, what do we do in the midst of failure? We so often, we don't sit. We don't see our need. We start furiously trying to clean ourselves up instead of following the sense of inner fear and the shame, following where those senses lead. Now, I don't mean to say that all of the shame that we experience is warranted. Some of us, again, this shame we experience is the result of ugly, unjust things that have been said and done to us. So often you need a brother and sister to dig through these things with you. And we do have a spiritual enemy who is called the accuser for a reason. But still, there is a sense of shame that is warranted, a sense that my guilt really is great. It's interesting. I was discussing this recently with somebody who was investigating the claims of Christianity, still is, and surprisingly, it didn't take much convincing for him. In fact, some of you here sitting, you know you, know you failed God. Even now, you're wondering to yourself, Pastor, if you only knew if this path that you're describing, I left that path a long time ago. But notice what David does next. He doesn't sink into self-despair. You know, he expects that there's hope for someone like him. Why? This is a very important, friends, verse 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness. Isn't this interesting? Notice what this verse is saying. Remember me, but don't remember my goodness. There's a lack there. Remember your goodness. As you see me, see your own deservedness. See your own name. Do it for your glory because clearly I don't bring what's necessary to the table. I have to tell you, we cannot hope to walk with God without the sober self-assessment that David describes, without the deep humility he longs after. After, after all, who is it the one, the one that God reveals, that guides, that reveals his covenant love for? The humble, it says. Even the sinner, but the sinner who is humble. A person of true faith will loosen their grip on self and all that they have relied upon to save themselves. They will admit that they are indeed lost. And that they can't correct this on their own. But this is still not enough. In fact, true faith not only gives up the attempt to save self, 
It turns to God crying, saying, remember your mercy, not my sin. Remember your love, not my transgression. Save me, not because I have something to offer you, but for the sake of your own goodness. Again, notice that David grounds his hope not in his own goodness, but in God's goodness. I'll tell you why this matters so deeply, friends, why this is so freeing if you can make this confession. You see, if God saves me because of some potential in myself or because of uh, something, uh, how I perform on my good days, what confidence do I have that his love will stick around on my bad days? This is why so many of us ride a roller coaster of insecurity with God. Like a young girl plucking a daisy, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. So many of us are still trying to ground our sense of God's love and how we have performed that day. But the only assurance that will do is not your goodness, but God's. Paul makes the implications of this in Romans chapter 8 when he says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What this is saying is that the reason we don't need to fear condemnation from God, though our guilt is great, if you have that sense, is that the requirement I could not fulfill has been fulfilled for me through the obedience of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, there is one who looked for God's guidance even when it was opposed, who derived comfort from God's presence even when all others forsook him. There is one who deserves the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, who nonetheless was cut off from it, so that I would receive grace for my sorrows and mercy for my sin. His integrity and his righteousness, of course referring to Jesus Christ and his perfect life and substitutionary death, his integrity and uprightness to the end, did not preserve him so that it might preserve me. I love the way one of my favorite hymns put this, puts this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Do you notice that? What do I do? Do I look back at myself and say, you're a star, you are deserving, you are worthy? No, I say, you are worthy. I look and see his face, what he has done for me, and that is the only thing that can eradicate condemnation, not my best days, only Christ's sacrifice. Only Jesus, the teacher, can show us the path toward life and well-being. Only Jesus, our friend, can walk with us and defend us, even when we are indefensible. Only Jesus, the Savior, can silence the accuser and cover our shame. Friends, it is this assurance we most need when the paths are winding, when the road is dangerous, when I prove so tempted and prone to wander. After all, this passage ends with what you might call a dot, 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 an ellipsis. Do you see this? It doesn't end with God's provision. It doesn't end with, and yet I have seen your face. I have seen you provide. It ends with waiting. What does the psalmist say? To wait upon God. That's his posture. Wait upon God to guide, protect, and rescue as I know so many of us are right now. You're waiting for God to come through for you. 
What sustains your life of patience and perseverance as all of us are waiting for King Jesus, especially in light of some of our oppressing sorrows? What enables us to wait is seeing something even David did not yet, something Paul refers to as he goes on in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, the only one who could condemn didn't. Instead, his son endured condemnation for us. No one can stand and condemn any longer because the sentence has been delivered. Friends, some of you need to be told that you need to be free to admit your limitations in sin. There is freedom in doing it. If you've never been honest with God, admit once for a second, even if you have a little bit of this sense, that you are worse off than you've ever dared to admit that is the first part of hoping in Christ. Well, some of us need to hear the second part, who have repented and still struggle with this internal sense of condemnation. We need to be told that through Christ and what he has accomplished, we are more loved than we ever dared hope, only through him. We need to be told not to remember your sin, but to remember God's goodness. David is still confident in the guidance and friendship of God, even in his guilt, because he knows the fear of the Lord. And he knows that fear of the Lord isn't so much perfection as it is directing your desires, locating your identity, attaching your loyalty, finding your hope in him and him alone. He looks to God for guidance, for presence, for forgiveness. And that's the path forward for all who would hope in him as well. Lord, we come to you as those who need a teacher, a friend, a savior, and we have those in Christ. And even now as we reflect upon all the ways in which we don't live in light of this as if this was true, I pray for those who do not yet confess faith in him that they may be more honest with themselves than they ever have been and find freedom in his name, a a release from their shame and condemnation. And for those who already do hope in him to remind themselves once again of the gospel, to navigate their life as Christians, bold Christians, even when it comes with a cost, to do so knowing they have the presence of Jesus who will be with us even to the end. And it's the longing that what sustains us as we wait upon him is the assurance that one day we will see him face to face, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we set our eyes upon him even now. It's for Christ's sake we pray, amen.